Squirrel was magic! This is uh, Diabolical Index for Monday, April 2nd. I almost said June 2nd for some reason. It's April 2nd, 2018, where the pages of the uncanny reside. I'm Corey Dawson, as always. We're coming to you live from Paradox City Books and Games in Rising Sun, Indiana. And uh, at the top, I have to say this is going to be a little bit difficult for me and a little different for me. But uh, tonight is... It's going to have to be a little bit more abbreviated than I would prefer. Um, as I was telling Andrew, my faithful man behind the, the camera, uh, as soon as I started on these books, I started to realize more and more as I dug in that it's better off if you don't know a lot of the things that, that I would be telling you. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to try to put the, the, uh, thematic things out there and, and other tonal things, some, some details here and there, but I don't know. They're, it's, they're not necessarily simple. Um, but I think that a lot of the things that I might reveal could, uh, I think it would take a little bit of the bite, a little bit of the sharpness off of the story. So I'll try my best. You may not even notice. It's one of those things where, you know, I just I just felt it was my duty to mention it. You probably wouldn't have noticed if I hadn't have mentioned it, but uh, you'll know when you read them, and I hope you do. Um, today I'll be going over the the Troop by Nick Cutter and the Circle by Dave Eggers. Um, I assume that uh, everyone knows that the Circle was made into a film with Tom Hanks, and uh, I actually have the film. So this will be one of those things where I I'm doing the opposite of what I normally do. One of those strange birds that like to, if the if the book comes out and I want to read the book and then the movie comes out before I've read the book, I always like to see the movie first. Same with Ready Player One. Uh, saw Ready Player One over the weekend and I've got some things to say about that, but this probably isn't the podcast for it. But uh, I I own the Circle uh, as a film, but I haven't uh, I haven't checked it out yet. So I actually read the the book first this time. So we'll see how that affects it. For me, if you watch the movie first, the movie gives you a, a kind of distillation. It gives you faces to the characters. It, it gives you uh, characters to the names. And it gives you reasons. And it gives you scope. But uh, a lot of times I've found at least nine times out of ten. I think Fight Club is a notable exception. I think that Fight Club was probably the closest... Uh, book to movie translation I've ever seen. So that, uh, I mean, despite the differences, there are some differences. Um, but I do think that in some ways there were some improvements. So it's rare when it happens, but it does happen. Uh, but uh, in this case, you know, 
we'll see what goes on. I haven't I haven't read Ready Player One either. So in this case, um, I, I did it the right in the right order. So I'm hoping, and don't take this the wrong way, but I'm hoping that uh, reading the book second on Ready Player One will enhance my my next viewing of it. Because um, it didn't quite hit the mark. But anyway. Like I said, I'm not going into that. That's for another podcast. Uh, you never know. That might be happening sometime. But um, speaking of podcasts, um, I wanted to mention that uh, you'll see that Anamonkai uh, won't be on the list for this week. I think they might have showed up on there, but that's going to be amended. Uh, they, as, as you probably know, it isn't a live podcast. It's, it's brought on and pre-recorded just for the time being keeping our fingers crossed that it's going to go live one of these days, but uh, they usually record on Sundays and something pretty important happened this Sunday and uh, everyone was kind of put out. So uh, it wasn't recorded this Sunday, but the boys have assured me that they are going to be back next week. And uh, they were actually with me at the, at the showing of ready player one. Of course they were. Why would they ever miss that? I mean, iron giant was in there. All kinds of other stuff was in there. Um, and I won't talk about that either. But they were there, and they had a lot of stuff to say about their next uh, their next episode. So no slacking off. It just family got in the way. Sometimes it happens. But anyway, um, there are other shows coming. There's one, actually, that I'm a part of, and a few other members of Magic Scroll Network and, uh, and other podcasts are involved in it. Uh, actually, Neo Rage is part of it, and the guys from Pointless Discussions, they asked me to come on and help out it's called the deplorables um it's kind of top secret i can't talk too much about it now but suffice it to say that it's uh it's going to have to do with a, a different different game every episode and uh game is played and uh some things are changed and some dialogue is laid over it and the the story gets pretty interesting, and uh, it was a lot of fun uh, when I went over to those guys. So, uh, Apparently, it's coming out in April. No particulars on that yet. There's still a lot of work to be done, but keep your eye out for the deplorables. And also, keep your eye out for Cinematic Reality, uh, the uh, the GoFundMe. Where was the Indiegogo? I was getting mixed up. The Indiegogo uh, did wonderfully. They uh, they made their, their quota, although I don't think anyone uh, signed up for the date. There was a date with 6.05. I'm not so sure that that perk got picked up, but you never know. If you pay attention and, uh, and throw some money at them, they, they might change their tune on that. But I'm sure they're going to be coming out with updates all over the place for when they get ready for that. And uh, just on a personal note, uh, a very interesting and groundbreaking couple. Uh, they have their own production company called Deranged Minds Entertainment. They actually put out Red Eye at uh, the Midwest Horror Fest last year. And they just blew minds all over the place. Their new uh, feature is called Inverted. And I believe that their Indiegogo is still on for that. And in fact, as far as I know, if I'm remembering this correctly, they, they've got some fantastic actors involved. Um, it, it, actually, it blows my mind, the, some of the names that they were able to get. Uh, I think her name is Lois Lowry. Maybe that's the author. Actually, I think she wrote The Giver. I can't remember. Uh, but definitely Lowry. It may have been Lena Lowry. But she was uh, one of the cast members of uh, Shivers, a uh, David Cronenberg movie from the 70s, early 80s. And it blew my mind when I heard that she was going to be on there. Uh, and also, uh, 
feel guilty. I don't remember her name, but it was one of the actresses from a personal favorite of mine, indie horror called uh, Starry Eyes. And if you haven't seen Starry Eyes, and if you haven't seen Shivers for that matter, check them out. They're fantastic. All I'm talking about is movies. All I'm talking about is movies. It's it's all Tom Hanks' fault. That's just period. But anyway, uh, speaking of which, uh, let's talk about the births and deaths in literary history, like I normally do. Um, and I might actually talk about a, a word that I learned while reading these books. So, which is always fun. I thought about maybe bringing that in. You know, some everybody's always surprised when I tell them that I have to break out a dictionary every once in a while. It's totally silly. There are uh, there's all kinds of words that interest me and that I've never seen before. But uh, the births, uh, I was actually I was astounded at the importance, the personal importance for me of the births and the deaths uh, for this week, not even just this month, but this week in literary history. Um, the first one that I discovered that had been born this uh, week was Edmund Rostand. He was the author of one of my big favorites, a play called Cyrano de Bergerac, about the large-nosed, uh, <laughs> the large-nosed, I guess you call him, a, I don't know, a blowhard, but he was a poet and a soldier and a master swordsman. And uh, Jose Ferrar depicted him wonderfully in the movie. And uh, later on, Steve Martin actually they did a remake of it called Roxanne, where he was a fire chief, and um, the dialogue in that movie is just totally masterful. I don't think that uh, even in Shakespeare, I'm not so sure that insults have been have been uh, woven as as good as Cyrano could do it. And of course, you know uh, he would he would be underestimated just due to the size of his nose, and people would try to insult him behind his back, and he'd always bring it out in the open and, and give them pointers on how they could have insulted his nose with some intelligence and flair. And usually after it was over, he pulled out his sword and then he, uh, he thrust home. So, uh, I totally recommend Cyrano de Bergerac, Edmund Rostan. And, uh, there were two more actually this, this week. It, I was, like I said, I was amazed at how many, uh, how many names that were really dear to my heart that were in these, uh, numbers. So, uh, next one on the list was Washington Irving, and he wrote a couple that you'd probably re- uh, remember, Rip Van Winkle, and I'm sure that he didn't outright produce that one. I think that may have been a a legend that he just put the paper and kind of collected all the different versions and, and distilled them into one, but everybody knows that story about the, the man who slept until old age and missed his life, but uh, the second one has been totally made popular by Disney in a bunch of different ways. And Tim Burton was the legend of Sleepy Hollow, a story of Ichabod Crane and the Headless Horseman, one of my favorite stories. And I think if you read the Washington Irving version of that story, you'll find out that Ichabod Crane wasn't quite the the victim and wasn't quite the, the nicest guy ever. So it gives a lot more depth to his character instead of just being kind of like a, a doddering old schoolmaster. So I definitely recommend checking that out. And uh, last on my list for today was um, Hans Christian Andersen. And he had collected the fairy tales over time. And like I said, just like Washington Irving, a lot of these probably weren't uh, in his fairy tale books. They probably weren't his 
on his own, but he had distilled him and, and kind of brought him out from the cobwebs. But, uh, the princess and the pea, Thumbelina, little mermaid, uh, Emperor's new clothes. So there, there are a bunch of them, um, just totally classic to time and legendary stories. And, uh, all three of them were born in this week. So those are the births and, uh, the deaths are even as powerful. In fact, uh, give me book cam if you don't mind. I actually have, uh, a book from city lights, which is one of the most, uh, famous bookstores in history, uh, during the, especially the beat period, which he was famous for Allen Ginsberg. I actually have a book of poems called Yiddish. And this is, uh, this is from that time, uh, 63, 1963. And, uh, he ran with Burroughs and Kerouac and, um, all those guys, Ken Casey of the, of the famous bus and, uh, one flew was cuckoo's nest. The, uh, I'm, I'm struggling to remember what the name of his, he had a crew of people that he, uh, he ran around with and I'm having trouble remember their names, but, um, something like the jolly miscreants or something like that. But, uh, he was really famous. I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, I'm not a gigantic fan of his poetry, but, uh, it really, it took the world by storm and it was kind of a, um, uh, it was a thumb in the face of normal canter of normal, uh, pentameter. So I don't know. He, I mean, he, he often said that he liked to celebrate himself above all. So, uh, it's one of those things where, there's not a whole lot of shame, which you shouldn't have, to be honest. Uh, I, I don't have a whole lot of shame myself, and i got to be true to what you're interested in. And uh, he was every day of his life, as far as I know, and he didn't mind telling you either. So, Allen Ginsberg uh, died this month, or this week, actually, of this month in history. Uh, and secondly, Saul Bellow, a famous writer, uh, really critically acclaimed. I'm not so sure that he hit quite as wide an audience as some other writers would have, but, uh, famous nonetheless, he wrote, uh, um, the Henderson, the rain King and, uh, Herzog and the adventures of Augie Marsh seize the day was one of his, uh, most, most famous, um, in a smaller way. Uh, and, and the cover was this fantastic blue with, uh, with gray and red lettering really subdued. It looked like, uh, even maybe a child had written the the front of it, but it was the famous story of a man who who just lived life to the fullest, even though he walked in the in the gutters mostly and and met the dregs of humanity. But still, he he went after it every single day. Uh, so Saul Bellow died this week, and uh, much to my eternal eternal sadness and mourning. Uh, Isaac Asimov died this week um, in history, and to say that Isaac Asimov is a master is is just about uh, just about as, as understated as you can possibly get. Uh, so, uh, Isaac Asimov brought so many things to so many people. Uh, he he wrote science books uh, so for the layman. He was able to bring. Uh, something, you know, as, as rudimentary, not necessarily rudimentary, but as uh, every day as mathematics to, you know, the furthest heights of the universe, uh, you know, physics, uh, the molecular structure elements, just what you name it. And he, and he gave it to the world, uh, in a, 
not necessarily an abbreviated or a, a, a sound bite type of way. Uh, he would explain it to you, not as a kindergartner, but as a friend. And uh, maybe even like a child, but not in a uh, condescending way. But one of the best parts about Isaac was his, just his uh, variety. He wrote gigantic analyses of the Bible and history. Uh, limericks. Uh, Jennifer was probably watching. Jennifer uh, didn't like the fact when she found out that Isaac had written limericks. And I thought it was great. I mean, how could you be more well-rounded than that? Yeah. And yeah, he wrote his fair share, I mean, more than his fair share. He wrote more books during his lifetime than any other author I can think of. Uh, I mean, when you when you snuff out Stephen King without even breaking a sweat, you know that you've written a lot of books. And uh, he wrote a lot of science fiction. He actually created the Three Laws of Robotics and uh, his, his wonderful iRobot and uh, the, uh, the Caves of Steel the Naked Son, about a, a grizzled detective and his robotic partner. Um, and mysteries, too. He wrote all kinds of mysteries. I couldn't recommend any mysteries more than the uh, the Cases of the Black Widowers, which was actually uh, supposed to be, in real life, it was supposed to be Isaac Asimov and a group of writers that he, that he uh, hung around with and told stories with. So uh, Black Widowers, make sure. Uh, case Book of Black Widowers by Isaac Asimov. Look for any of those books. I recommend all of them. And then he, I think that he actually wrote some that couldn't be Black Widowers for some reason, and they became the Union Street Mysteries. So um, I should probably shut up about Isaac Asimov because I can honestly go on all day. Uh, it, I, every time I think about him being taken away, it, it just it bums me out because there was so much. He gave so much. I mean, that's that's one of the things that I that I don't mourn is the fact that he. Like Saul Bellow, in that character of Seize the Day, he gave it all. Everything he knew, anything about, he would find out books worth, and then he would write it and, and give it to the world. So Isaac Asimov uh, died, along with Saul Bellow and Allen Ginsberg, this week in history. So there are the birds and deaths. Uh, pretty esteemed, I have to say. The, all, almost all the names which should be known to anyone who's watching this. But uh, there you go. Um, and so, it's time to go on to my first selection. And uh, this is kind of pointed at TJ from Heckles and Horror. Uh, hopefully he's out there either uh, live or later on. Hopefully he's listening to this because uh, there is no doubt that he is going to be interested in this because there is no question that this is probably... I mean, I, I hate to put it out like this, but just so anyone watching doesn't get confused. This is the most visceral horror book that I've read in a long time. Probably the last one, actually, TJ, TJ and I were talking about was The Ruins. And this actually has some similar, not tons, some, not tons, but some similarities to The Ruins. Um, have you got the, the image up that I need to show him, Bookham? Okay, the name is The Troop by Nick Cutter, so there you go. And um, I was reading a little bit about Nick Cutter, and um, apparently Nick Cutter is a pseudonym, a pen name of his, and he he writes a little bit, uh, I don't know if you'd call it more legitimate fiction under uh, under that name, and he's, he's won some awards, so I think much like the... Uh, the character of George Stark 
in uh, the dark half. I think that he wants to keep, and, and Richard Bachman for that matter, which the dark half is kind of based on that part of Stephen King's life. I think that Nick Cutter wants to have a playful relationship with his uh, with his pseudonym so he can write uh, the really visceral stuff. Um, it's it's a rare thing when I uh, when I am kind of taken aback by uh, just how gruesome a horror can be. But I'm I'm actually I'm I'm kind of hesitant to label it as gruesome because um, there's a story at the center of it that's uh, just as poignant when it comes to I mean basically the titular troop is a troop of uh, Boy Scouts who's brought together by a an out of towner scoutmaster named Tim and he. I mean, it's 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 one of those kind of hackneyed cliches when you think of the the scoutmaster just you know wearing the the kerchief around his neck and the and the hat like some sort of old uh, World War One battalion leader or something like that. But um, he basically takes them to an island off the coast of Prince Edward Island called Falstaff, uh, named after the uh, the famous. I don't know if you call him. Uh, I guess you'd call him kind of a hedonist or maybe like a, a lover of life, kind of like the Dionysian type of character, really rotund and full of life and, and shouted all of his curses and all those types of things. But the island's named Falstaff. And he takes him there uh, for a test, a very soft test of survival, just the, the camping variety uh, out in the weeds. Uh, as if to to show their uh, their tribal tendencies and to also practice their scout craft and uh, it turns out that there's someone else out there on the island that they didn't expect to meet and uh, as they as they gather around the fire uh, there's a lot of boys it's it's uh, it's almost impossible not to have this story harken back to, on one hand, Lord of the Flies, with uh, all, all of the young men in this. Uh, I mean, this is not a... It's one of those things where they arrive on purpose, unlike Lord of the Rings, but there is a uh, there is a hierarchy of cliques and uh, groups within a group that's threatened by even something as, as uh, intense as fighting for their lives or as simple as gathering firewood. Um, there are these little interplays and little uh, fights and rivalries and betrayals within the group. Um, their names are uh, Max and Ephraim. They have a very wide selection of names. It was, I was interested because uh, from the way it came off, I thought their names were going to be Joe and, and Samuel. But... It was um, Ephraim, and I think Eve, I think it's they may say Eef, E E F for Ephraim, but they might call him Ephraim. Uh, Max and Newton. He's called Newt because he's kind of the nerdiest one, I guess. And uh, I'm I'm sure I'm forgetting some of them, but I think there are five or six of them under Tim the Scoutmaster. But they they're cooking around the campfire and. Uh, as we're 
led by a little bit of narration in the, in the beginning from this absolute creature that was once a man uh, named, uh, I think it was Thomas Paget. Um, the only reason why I can remember Paget is because one of the guys on, on the Main Street Lurkers' name is Paget. So, uh, but he he absolutely becomes a subhuman creature due to a, uh, a doctor named Clive Edgerton, who uh, I think, I'm trying to remember this as well, I believe that he mutates a worm called a hydatid, and it's it's normally a just a small, not necessarily harmless, but a a worm that he mutates in order to uh, provide a communicable way of weight loss, and uh, just like these things always do when you try to thumb your nose at Mother Nature or you try to go about things the easy way and uh, and twist DNA to to make something new. Uh, Sometimes the worst can happen. In this case, his first trial subject, uh, Paget, ends up becoming something that's later called the Hungry Man. Uh, a skeletal, pustulant creature, ever hungry, ever ravenous, due to the hydatids that are swirling and festering and slithering inside of his guts and over his skin and through his face and everything else. Um, and (laughs) wow. Wow. That's all I can say uh, about this book because I mean, like, but I hesitate to, I hesitate to really go off about the gruesomeness because for me, it didn't seem like it was overplayed. It didn't seem like the the hand was dealt too uh, too feverishly. I thought that it was in the right places. There, unlike most things, you know, there, I, I saw a few reviews of this calling it uh, Lord of the Flies yet again uh, meets Night of the Creeps. If everyone, hopefully, everyone has seen Night of the Creeps. If you haven't. Shame on you. You definitely need to see it. It's, a, it's an 80s marvel and uh, a gem by the, the creator of Monster Squad. But I think that with Night of the Creeps, I think they might attack that review on there just because uh, there are worm-like creatures that, uh, that kind of take you over. But in that respect, in that movie, you were dead when they took you over. And this book... You're not dead for a very long time. And actually, you, uh, according to some of the narrators uh, in the book, who are very unexpected, uh, there are uh, there are a lot of... there. Are, I'm not... Okay. See what I mean? It's dangerous. It's dangerous. I could, I could talk about a lot of the stuff in here because it's, uh, this book, it... It really, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say it turned my stomach because it didn't turn my stomach, but what it did do was, uh, was make my stomach tighten and totally chilled my spine. Uh, but, uh, basically it breaks down, it breaks down your fear of, uh, of your, of these things, uh, using you as a host because it brings out the most, uh, basic 
feral animal desire that we have, and that's to feed, to be fed. Uh, anyone who gets taken over by these things, they slowly get uh, devoured. And as the worms devour, so they uh, make you want to feed them. Uh, and you feed one and it reproduces, and those reproduce, and you feed it. And uh, it's, a, it's an endless cycle. Kind of. Kind of endless. Uh, there are depths that it goes to that, um, that for, for my money, I'm not so sure, and I've, you know, I've talked about this before, uh, the ruins is, is the closest thing that I've come, come to this. And, uh, and that, that was one that I definitely thought hadn't kind of, there was kind of a dividing line, uh, for me in the seventies, uh, where all of a sudden horror changed. And I think that it might actually be an uh, economical thing too. There was a point where, um, horror started to fade away from the airport bookstores and, and the larger chains and, in, in a, in a major way. Uh, and you know, of course, King kind of brought out into the open to the mainstream, but when King kind of became a, a brand unto himself, all of the followers and the stragglers and, and the ones who wanted to cash in kind of fell by the wayside. And in my opinion, I'm not so sure that horror has ever been as grand as it was in the seventies. Um, there are ones, you know, before that, uh, I mean, of course, Lovecraft and his circle, uh, Henry Belknap Long and, and Ashton Smith. But, um, there was some of the seventies that gave it, I don't know it had to do with the sexual revolution, but, it gave it a, a visceral tone and uh, and fiber that they haven't quite been able to match. Um, I think there's kind of a uh, an artifice to the the '80s. Uh, I think there's kind of a superficial horror that that came about in the '80s. Not that I don't enjoy a lot of '80s stuff. There is a lot of '80s stuff I do enjoy, but uh, I think at that time the genres were kind of starting to bend slightly, where uh, horror was just a, a figment of other things. Like, for instance, in um, Deliverance. Anyone who wouldn't think that Deliverance is a horror story uh, obviously doesn't pay attention. Except it's, uh, it's one that you can not necessarily relate to, but you can think is happening. And that's kind of one of the things with these two books uh, that I was going to go over tonight was I thought of the invasion from within and the invasion from without. Uh, which is to say, uh, in the troop, in the case of the troop, you become it. It's inside of you. And uh, with uh, with the next one, the circle, uh, it's something coming from outside trying to know what's in, inside of you. Uh, so those two ended up going together a lot better than I could have dreamt. And also, uh, they also both exhibited a little bit of each other's qualities. Uh, but, yeah, I it's difficult. I just want to give away the whole thing. But uh, what I am going to give away is that The Troop is a fantastic horror story. Uh, it'll definitely, if you can take it, if you can turn the page and, uh, and get to the end, then, uh, then you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. In fact, uh, there's actually an element of Stephen King's work in this that uh, it's, it's difficult I mean, using that word a lot tonight, difficult, but it's difficult to do right. Uh, 
what happens here. Um, and Dracula, there was a there was a uh, adherence to this correspondence used to tell the story. And in Carrie, Stephen King's uh, first kind of big time work, uh, everything not everything, but the, kind of the uh, the meat of detail was given in newspaper stories and radio broadcasts and TV uh, news shows with uh, Carrie. And I don't think that it's been done uh, correctly or uh, I don't think that it's uh, worked since Carrie. I've seen other things that kind of tried to mimic the the same thing and uh, it hasn't worked out. He has done it in this book. There are certain details that you might find yourself when you're reading it. Why is this happening? What started it? Did they survive? Um, a lot of those answers come from uh, different publications that are, are talked about. There are actually uh, excerpts that are used in between chapters, in between parts, that uh, give you the information you need so you can return back to the human story. And it, it, is, uh, it is a human story. Um, much like Stand By Me is a human story. Or even, I, I was kind of reminded of uh, Dreamcatcher in a couple of ways. Um, so there is definitely a human story, uh, but ends up becoming an inhuman um, antagonist. That's all I'm going to say about the troop. Definitely uh, check it out. Give me a book camera real fast. The troop, Nick Cutter. Um, Definitely at your earliest convenience, and even if it's inconvenient, do it anyway. Uh, definitely read The Troop by Nick Cutter. Uh, I've known a lot of people who are interested in it, and as far as I can tell, it's been on practically every list of the best new horror in the ten years, in the next, in the last ten years. So uh, I totally agree, um, because um, I'm trying to remember this properly too. I think Stephen King said that. Uh, horror is when you know you're in a in a dark room with a dead body. Terror is when you actually touch the dead body. But uh, in this case, he did his third uh, his third go to, which is the gross out, because there are definitely some gross parts in it. But um, I don't think it's. I think that the. I think that what makes it stick and what makes it solid is that. It's nothing so far-fetched that you wouldn't be able to imagine it, which is actually the scariest thing. So, anyway, enough of that. The Troop, Nick Cutter. Read it. Period. The second book is called uh, The Circle by Dave Eggers. And uh, I think that, uh, I think that the, the, the book that Dave Eggers is known for is a heart, heartbreaking work of staggering genius, I think it's called. Uh, about a, I think it's about a son and his father's relationship. But this is also about a relationship, and it's a relationship between us and our technology, and our identity, and our our wants and likes and desires, and practically every element that we share on social media. Uh, that was one thing, uh, you know, by the by the film. I mean, I can't help it. I was influenced by the. Um, by, by the trailer for the film that I had seen. And I really wanted to know what the story was behind it. And I, once I had picked the troop, uh, for some reason, the circle came to mind and it's, it's, it's something that almost can't be expressed because it's so 
prevalent. It's so present in our everyday lives. What you read in the circle isn't some overblown dystopia that you, uh, you know, you see in the news things happen and you, uh, you amplify it by a hundred and all of a sudden you have this dystopian prison. The prison of the circle is our willingness to tell, our willingness to share and leave ourselves open to the barbs of popular opinion. And uh, in some case, mob justice, really. Uh, I mean, is there anywhere where you can more easily be overtaken by a mob than the internet? Um, in this case, this is, uh, it's, it's paramount. In fact, uh, there, there is a closest thing that you could call an antagonist in this book. His name is uh, Ty. And he is the golden child, the one who creates the circle. And basically the circle is this, I guess you'd almost call it like an, an Apple campus or a Google campus, Facebook realm. Uh, but it's, it's physical. It's the place where all the people who want to create what we uh, the, the format in which we bear ourselves to the world. It's the utopia in which they live and try to bring this. Uh, it's, it's always a misconception. There's always something that someone is selling us and we, uh, we see it at face value and we don't dig deep enough to know that it can be sharpened into a knife. Uh, but, uh, but it's not unbelievable in this circle uh, in which the protagonist, May, short for Maybelline, which I thought was interesting, um, but with an E, not a Y, she ends up uh, kind of slaving away in this uh, utility company, in this small uh, cubicle that she thought she was going to, she thought she was going to leave. She had grand ideas in college of, of uh, getting a degree, uh, I believe it was psychology, and finding her way, but she never wanted to actually, you know, pursue that. And really when all you need is a piece of paper and, um, it doesn't, I mean, I know very few people who have a degree in anything that end up doing what they studied to do. Uh, because it's just the, the fact and the availability of that piece of paper that is needed to, to reach even the most, you know, medium echelon. So, she does that, and she doesn't get any farther than her reach. But she does keep in contact with a, a friend of her, hers from college named Annie. And Annie was the one, the golden girl, the one who always did everything right. Even though she, uh, she would smile and make mistakes, and she would fumble and make friends, and she would... Uh, completely fail and make the grade. Uh, not due to any sort of sexual prowess or anything like that. She was just unstoppable. Uh, personality. Uh, just an unbelievable collection of quirks that somehow creates this equation that gets them everything they want. I'm sure that everyone watching has known a person like that. And if you don't know that person, you probably are that person. So, uh... It does happen. 
But uh, and he actually paves a way for May to start not necessarily an entry level position, but in a uh, in a position with teeth at the circle, and allows her to to enter and become part of the of the web and part of the what I don't know. I guess you'd even call it like a body. Because there's so many things working at once, so many innovations happening at once, that it could almost be the inside of a brain. Which is also kind of characterized by the building itself. Um, in order to kind of, I don't know, just kind of bring home this idea of transparency. Ty, the, the leader of the circle, um, he actually has two lieutenants. Well, not necessarily lieutenants. They call them the three wise men. Uh, Eamon Bailey... And um, the other character, can't remember his name, but it's basically when you think of any of the big uh, computer magnets of the last 20, 30 years, it's, it's all those guys rolled into one and then split into three. Um, but, but he, everything's made of glass because there is no, there are no hidden places in the circle. Uh, he considers information to be like babies he doesn't want anything killed no information is to be deleted in the circle which brings up kind of like the uh the thread of this ultimate corruption uh at the bottom of of the whole story and our it's our story it's our story now um there's nothing and you know i i read some reviews from wired and uh, kind of like these lofty technological gurus that said that uh, everything that happens in the circle is a 1984 fever dream dreamed up by some uh, Orwellian prophet where it could, you know, we always think that the gloom and doom are happening when in fact it's innovation and it ends up being something we use that next year. Well, I think that that's a, definitely a biased attitude because, uh, I saw things in this in this book that easily touch on our everyday lives, and uh, especially now. I mean, it seems like we can't go we can't go a week without finding out about some sort of uh, information dump, some kind of heist from uh, from different places where we go on the computer to to buy and to sell and to uh, to record and to broadcast, and everywhere we go. You got to put it in. If you want to be a part of it, you have to give them a cautious amount of your information. But in the circle, it's all for the taking. The circle is actually built on the premise that uh, once you have this, uh, I, I guess you'd call it sort of a a one sh one stop shop for your identity called True You. Which ends up uh, spelling Ty, T-Y. Uh, I don't know if that's... Maybe that's some sort of little tick right there as well from the creator. But um, basically, it foregoes the need for multiple identities. For shadow identities. For fake names. For uh, drop boxes. For any sort of uh, hidden world that you live in and, and you operate from. Uh, it gives you ultimate 
accessibility to everything along with complete transparency. So it's pretty much everyone's nightmare dressed as a dream come true. Because um, if you if you don't have anything to hide, then why not show it to everyone? So that leads to an unbelievably chilling view of uh, of the politics of sex, um, of the the meaning of identity. Of um, I mean, when it comes down to it, really, I mean, it's uh, oh, and we're coming to that that word that I learned. Um, I learned the word uh, auger, and I guess people get get that mixed up with the you know the hand drill of an auger. But a u g u r. It was a Roman, uh, almost like a priest, that would use. Uh, I gotta say this right, orthonomancy, uh, the study of the movements and the eating and the calls of birds. They would use them to try to predict the way that uh, the future would run. And once I had found out about that, I realized that I'm, I totally remember one of those characters from Julius Caesar where, you know, someone was looking at the guts of a crow and, and found in, you know, and found in that some sort of divining power to know that something, something was amiss somewhere. But basically, I mean, we have those, there are predictive technologies in practically everything we use we have things that are put on our computer so the next time you visit anywhere, you have something pop up on there that shows something that you liked. And you're more likely to be sent somewhere that has something that you want. So uh, the circle kind of takes that and doesn't blow it out of proportion. I think it just fills the space that it's inevitable to fill. And at, at the circle itself, at the building... Every uh, every place you go is named after another era. So they'll say, I'll meet you in the Old West, or we have a meeting in the Industrial Revolution at 9 o'clock. So what is at the top of all eras? Who is the master of time? Who is the master of space? So, I mean, there's, there's definitely... Uh, it doesn't hide the fact that anyone who has all the information on everyone all the time is definitely going to be nothing less than a god. So, um, it's it's not far-fetched. It's far-reaching, but it doesn't uh, go anywhere near the ludicrousness that uh, that reviewer from Wired talked about, in my opinion. Uh, and I don't want to say too much about May's progress and May's outcome, because... Um, I think it could be the most chilling part of the whole story. But, um, I mean, I guess you have to ask yourself, in a place where nothing is hidden, where do the secrets come from? Where, what could possibly be hidden? What could be under and behind the curtain? And chances are it's, it's something that you would find most horrific in the world. And who knows what happens? Uh, I... I mean, of course, of course, with something that, with a story that uh, uses transparency as its as its ultimate goal, of course, I'm going to hide uh, exactly what happens because um, I was totally, I, I found it totally chilling, um, especially since everything is in this accepting, soft, 
allowance. Um, no races are uh, are exempt. There's no uh, there's no bias. I mean, except for the biases of your of your own, you know, of your own choice, and that's that's what, kind of where what where it all spins from. When your choice is so obvious, when everyone knows what you want, at what point do you find out that you're being manipulated? Um, and you know, I wax philosophical about all this stuff because there are, there are so many large but attainable ideas in the circle. Um, and it's, it's really, really, uh, imaginative, but relatable. And it, uh, it really, really goes the distance when it comes to, uh, how can you possibly make something about, uh, uh, things that we deal with every day. How can you turn it around and make us realize something about it that we hadn't seen 10 times before? So that's where I'm going to leave you with, uh, the circle. Um, and I'm sure that after all this, it felt, it just feels like I told you nothing. And I hope that's exactly what happened because, uh, I, uh, I recommend reading the circle by Dave Eggers and also the troop by Nick cutter and, uh, auger. That's your word for the day. Um, orthinomancy. It's difficult to say. Difficult to everything. Difficult. Maybe it's just, I don't know. I feel like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. But anyway, those are the books for tonight. Uh, thank you for tuning in, as always. And uh, let's see. I'm still trying to figure out what the, what the non-entry. Uh, believe it or not, it's, it's really difficult to find the Choose Your Own Adventure books. So... I'm not so sure that everybody was totally pumped. Actually, maybe it's time for the Lone Wolf. Maybe it's time. I'd say DJ wants some goosebumps. He said he has some goosebumps. Does he? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I don't know. Yeah, I think we may have to do Lone Wolf next time. We've done a few of these so far. There are some rules to this one. It's a little bit more complex, but I might try to pare it down and make it a little bit easier, uh, more palatable. But um, well, give me a book cam on this one. It's got this fantastic, uh, evil, I mean, I, I guess I'm uh, assuming the, the evil of this wizard, but I don't know. He's got that look. It's called Fire on the Water. Role-playing adventure. Lone Wolf. I remember these so vividly. Uh, I got my first one at a, at a book fair when I was a kid. I, I'm not so sure, even with all of my travels and all of my book hunts that I go on, I'm not so sure that anything could possibly uh, match the joy and just the, the total richness and fantasy of the book fair. I mean, I guess in some cases, in a lot of cases, anyone who remembers, I mean, that may have been the first time that uh, your mom or dad would have given you any substantial amount of money to to basically buy your own toy in the form of a book, you know. And, um, of course, I mean, anyone who's been in here, I mean, look behind me. It was never enough. It could never possibly be enough. So, uh, yeah. So I look forward to that, but, uh, beware your human heart. This has been the diabolical index for April 2nd, 2018. Uh, definitely pick up the circle by Dave Eggers and the troop by Nick Cutter. 
uh, wherever you can find them. Uh, What's that now? Oh, so, okay. Yeah, I'm not going to mention what just happened uh, because I uh, did pretty stupidly once. I'm not going to do that again. But uh, hopefully, uh, Paul is. uh, Hopefully, Paul hasn't been, uh, I don't know, deterred from reading the circle uh, by my vagueness about it. But um, there's so much to it. Yeah, me too. James, definitely. Big Hurley knows. Uh, It's just something, in fact, uh, you know, I I look at Lucy's um, book fair pamphlets and it just seems like a whole lot of nothing to me. I remember when we got the book fair pamphlets, it was like five or six pages and it was so dense. There were so many uh, books on offering. And now it's just big and flashy and pictures and nothing. I mean, I don't know. It seems like I wasn't too much older than her at the time, but maybe they'd have different levels for different ages. I'm not sure. Hopefully, uh, it looks a little bit better after that. But anyway, I'm going off. Um, yeah, if anyone works for Osborne Books, you know, don't get near me. But, <laughs> but anyway, this has been Diabolical Index for April 2nd, 2018. And as always, keep it squirrely.